2: And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout.
1: Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right and a
2: woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. This is Sarah Holland from the left and Beth Silvers from the right. Welcome to a very special episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we are sharing our interview with Mark McKinnon from Showtime's The Circus, and are basically beside ourselves with how awesome it went.
1: I feel like I've died and gone to heaven. I mean, I mean said that when he when he said he would come on, I was like, surely he's you know this is not going <laughs> to happen, and then it happened, and
2: it's amazing. So coming up. In the suit, Mark McKinnon. But first, we're going to talk about some of the more inflammatory issues uh, arising in the campaign right now. And in the heels, we're going to talk about Beyonce. And I'm really excited about that, too. Uh, Before we dive into the show, just a quick reminder, everybody, you can sign up for our email list at the top of our Facebook and Twitter page. And please rate us on iTunes if you have a chance. And more exciting, we have a brand new website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, that we'd love for you to go over and check out. And also, if we didn't have enough exciting things in this episode, we're going to launch the... the idea of sort of donor support for the show you know our our politics are free but the show costs money so if you love pantsuit politics and you'd like to make a little uh, listener supported donation for the show that'd be great and all the information for that is on our new website pantsuitpoliticsshow.com
1: what we're really hoping to do is continue to grow this community and offer some additional things to this community. So it's,
2: it's been an amazing experience so far and we're looking forward to even more. Absolutely. So today in the pearls, we got, we got a lot of talks about, we got a lot of talk about Beth. There's just, there's a lot. There is so
1: much. And, and I would say this is another reason to sign up for those emails because there's a lot coming and I have a feeling that we'll have more uh, stuff that we basically have to blog about because we don't yeah, just not record time. every day. Yeah. So we're going to start with the the Republican debate, and Sarah, thank you for live-tweeting the Republican debate while I was basically on my deathbed. Oh, my Um, goodness. It was was a big
2: one. I mean, well, first of all, uh, can we talk about the entrance? I'm sitting there. For anyone who didn't see the debate or have somehow not gone on the Internet, which has turned this into meme-to-end-all meme... Ben Carson, it was really loud in the stadium or, or the where the hall, wherever they were. Ben Carson missed his cue, so he was, like, basically standing there. And then I think Donald Trump missed his cue. It's like everybody else walked past them. It – I really couldn't believe what I was witnessing as I was watching it. It was so awkward and hilarious. Well, so it was that strange.
1: Part, it was ABC. Like, yeah. how ABC didn't have someone – who would just say, "I'm going to walk out here
2: and push Ben Carson onto the stage"? You know, well, you see there's like a little flagging. guy. Yeah, there's a little guy who like peeps his head out and is like, "Go, go!" and and Ben Carson said something to him, I don't know what, and then the guy's like, "All right, whatever, just stand there." <laughs> it was so strange. So it started off weird, and then it got ugly real fast. Uh, Chris Christie went after Marco Rubio in a seriously brutal way.
1: Well, I saw
2: him interviewed
1: about it after the fact and Chris Christie said and I think this is smart of him and and true to some extent. If everybody thinks that was brutal brutal, think about Marco Rubio standing next to Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. I and he's
1: right. I mean, he, he said, "We call that a day off in New Jersey." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he well, just
2: so- took he was taking what somebody called body shots. And I thought that was so went after him for repeating it. And then he continued to repeat these little stock phrases he has. And one of them was if we don't think Barack Obama knows what he's doing, we're fooling ourselves. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he would say it over and over. It was so wooden, so terrible and really allowed for Christie. And I think Bush, who went after Trump at one point, to really shine
1: I think so, too. I have to spend a second talking about this moment with Marco Rubio, because all the coverage is directed at how he said the same line four times. And he did. And that's problematic. If you listen to what that line is, it's even more troubling. He's using it to say, basically, I guess I guess the first time he trotted it out, it was to say a freshman senator can be experienced enough to be the president.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the substance of the line and and the position that he doubled down on in the Sunday shows after the debate is is that Barack Obama is almost in a conspiratorial way trying to destroy the United States. He's, he's saying Barack Obama knows exactly what he's doing. So there are conservatives who believe President Obama is incompetent. I think that is false and insulting. There are conservatives who would say... Barack Obama is a smart, talented person with whom we disagree, sincerely. Mm -hmm. That's where I would fall. Marco Rubio is saying Barack Obama is a smart, talented person who hates this country. They say that they talk the
2: same way about Hillary Clinton, and it drives me crazy.
1: That's such a problem. This guy is supposed to be the future of the party, and he is so entrenched in what i think are the more extreme elements. This is why i continue to say on twitter and i'm and i'm sorry that it's becoming a little bit of a rant from me. I do not believe Marco Rubio is an establishment candidate. I think mm-hmm. Marco Rubio belongs in the Donald Trump and Ted Cruz lane because he's he has this extreme position on abortion. I mean, he's just he is far, far right. Oh yeah, he
2: went out and went and clarified for all the Matt Walshes on the, of the world that he really would force a woman to who was raped to carry the child. Like he 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 clarified that for anybody who was worried. I just. I don't think he's read Kristen Sultan Anderson's book. I can tell you that much.
1: No, and he's supposed to be the face of that generation. It's just, I I don't know. I'm not a fan. I haven't been a fan all along. If you'll recall, right before this debate, we put out an episode where I said I don't think there's any there there, and Mm -hmm. and off he goes with just a bunch of lines. I sure am. (laughs) So you're right. Jeb Bush had a nice moment, too, with uh, with Trump on eminent domain, although I wish that he could have a nice moment about an issue that more Americans have familiarity with. Yeah. um, Instead of such a kind of law school issue. But but he, he is, I think, increasingly showing his chops. And, you know, I saw someone on Morning Joe, I think it was Mark Halperin today, say a lot of New Hampshire voters are starting to say, well, now, wait, who would make the best president? Mm-hmm. And Jeb Bush is their answer. It's disturbing to me that that's a new question. But yeah. I guess that's
2: where we are. Well, that's all. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm, I'm. as far as where we're coming out with the, with the GOP go with New Hampshire tomorrow or right now, if you're listening to it, the day this program comes out is I think there's a really good chance. Kasich is going to perform outperform expectations I'm, I'm buying his line about that. He's been there the whole time and he's been building this foundation. I don't think it's going to be Christie or Bush, despite these moments in the debate. I I have a feeling it's going to be Kasich.
1: I think it could very well be. I think the difficulty for Kasich is that just the charisma factor, the sort of imposing leader factor. it, It seems like people are so drawn to Donald Trump because of that intangible something about him. And Kasich doesn't really have that. But Kasich has a lot of positives, and I do think in a general election he could be more formidable because he has this message that is really uniting. And I, I think at the very least he could pull Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders more to the center during a general election, and that would be a good thing.
2: All right. On the subject of Hillary Clinton, the other big uh, uh, brouhaha, <laughs> over, Quite the the brouhaha. <laughs> over the weekend was um, glorious Steinem. Dynam- came out and sort of made a joke that – I don't know if it was a joke – said that the young women young women who were supporting Bernie Sanders were just there because the men were there, because the the bros were there. And Madeline Albright basically said, shame on you for supporting Bernie Sanders if you're a woman. Okay. Um, Problematic. Problematic, obviously. Young women don't want to be talked down to about their candidate choice. Uh, Glory Steinem has since backtracked and said I had she called it talk show interruptus that that's, you know, she believes young women are involved in the political process. She did not need to imply that they are talk down to them or say that they don't know what they're doing, that they're involved like ever before and the stakes are very high for them. Uh, Madeleine Albright, I don't believe, has walked back and Hillary Clinton sort of brushed it off as, oh, people will be offended at anything these days, which obviously n- probably not the best approach.
1: This whole thing, just I I, just, I don't even know what to say about it. It's so bad. Nothing pushes my buttons as a woman like being told how to feel. Mm-hmm. And that's true whether it's coming from a woman or a man. And I think it's almost worse coming from two women especially someone like Madeline Albright, who I really admired, um, mm-hmm. d- despite our political differences, This, the, and I understand that she's been saying this, there's a special place in hell line for years, but to say it in this context, I, I, I think she's a smarter politician than that. Well... Um, this, was, this was bad.
2: Here's what I think. I've thought a lot about this over the weekend. I think that in many ways... Age can be informative, as informative to your belief system or generation experience. These kind of generational guideposts can be just as informative as your gender. I think it's very, very important. I think the idea, even though, you know, Kristen's book and I think this, these discussions are important, but I think that the idea that we're going to bridge a generational divide is is foolish. We're not. We're different. And there's different roles to be played. Um, I think that the discussion between a younger generation and the older generation between you know, this is how it is. Yeah, we know, but this is how we want it to be is important. I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think it needs to go anywhere. However, I and I think the reason that's important is because with The generational divide, you have very different experiences. So I kept thinking about Kristen's email to us about Bernie supporters. And at one point she said, what 2008 proved to me is that there will be a woman that will go all the way to the White House. And I thought, wow, because that's not what I left experiencing. And I think if you're a 20 something woman, and you feel like, yeah, it's going to happen, you have a completely different experience than somebody. Gloria Steinem is 80 years old. Let's be honest. If she doesn't see a, pre- a female president now at this election, the chances that she will are very, very low. So there's a lot more at stake for her. And when she feels or, De- or Madeline Albright feels like when the stakes seem higher to them and they're willing to go out on a limb like this, I don't really think it's surprising. I don't think me as a 34-year-old woman and most certainly someone in their 20s has any clue what these women were up against. We don't understand how hard it was for them. And I think that that can't be discounted. I think that has to be listened to. And I don't think we can just write them off because they say something that is offensive to a younger generation. I think that it needs to be the beginning of a discussion and not the end of one. As always with political issues where we all want to double down on our sides. Because both, I mean, the truth to me is, is the truth of paradox. Both sides are right. These women are right. To them, to the, the paradox of sort of the generational experience is, yeah, there's a lot at stake. And we know it and we understand it in a way you don't. And you need to hear us when we say there's a lot at stake and don't and, and support Hillary Clinton. Paradoxically, young people that young women that are saying, We are experiencing gender differently. We have not, um, you know, our vision of the world is more fulfilled by Bernie Sanders, who pushes against these, all these, I mean, they're both right. They're both true. And I, I just worry, I just don't want it to shut down discussions because, or to really discount these two incredible women and their experiences and the importance of having a conversation with women who experience things we don't understand and to help them understand where we're coming from. I mean, I, I when this happened, I could not help but think of this meeting I had when I worked for Hillary Clinton with um, several sort of old guard leaders of the um, reproductive rights movement. And we were – I don't remember if we were planning an event or something. And I said – I said, you know, I I didn't when she was very much feeling sort of out of touch. And I said, you know, I identify her with her the most. I see the real Hillary when she talks about her hair. Like, I know it's silly, but like when she talks about it and she kind of you can see her relax and like just be light and personable about the way people act about her hair is like so great. And they were appalled that I would bring that up, like just appalled oh my god she has to be taken serious she cannot talk about her hair that's insane like just they about laughed me out of the room and you know the the truth was probably somewhere in the middle you know she has to be careful because she has to be taken seriously as a woman but at the same time she needs to be seen as a human being and i think that's what's happening here the truth is both sides are right in the some found somewhere in the middle that I think there is a lot, there's more at stake than young women maybe want to acknowledge and they need to listen to older women when they talk about that. And there is a lot more at stake for young women than older women understand and they need to listen to that. I know that sounds like the most, you know, pass the buck answer ever, but it's, it's really how I feel.
1: <laughs> well, the, the other thing is you would like older women to see that younger women's perception that there will be a female president in their lifetimes, that's a testament to the work of previous generations.
2: Yeah, so true. That's such a great answer to that.
1: And so what I thought most watching this, in addition to, oh, this is really going to widen the gap between older and younger women, is this is not good for Hillary Clinton does not need this. This is Mm -hmm. not good for Hillary Clinton. The last thing she needs are more people lining up to lecture folks on how she's entitled to the presidency at this point. So true. And that's really how this came across, and it's really unfortunate. I also think that until we make space for the notion that despite not being able to understand what came before them— the millennial generation has real and valid and helpful things to bring to the process.
2: Absolutely. They're
1: they're going to be lost and the results are not going to be what anybody wants. And so this just wasn't good for anybody.
2: I think she should have said, I mean, Hillary needs to start listening to our podcast because I think the answer is sort of what we talked about with Kristen. And I think Gloria Simon talked about this a little bit. Women grow more radical as they age. Right, and, and so Gloria
1: Steinem said that in her interview. Yeah, absolutely. Men yeah. grow more conservative because they amass power as they age. Mm-hmm. Women grow more radical because they lose power as they. And
2: age And that's the answer, right? So bridge the gap. Say like, okay, here's where they're coming from. We we hear you. We don't want to talk down to you, and we don't want to you to feel like you're not being listened to. Um, but understand, there's some things in front of you that you haven't experienced yet. Like they're they're coming for you. <laughs> you're going to you're going to have a little bit of insight on where these women what they were talking from. I, I it's just tough. It's just these but I also feel like you know, Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright didn't invent this. This generational crosstalk. It's not new. It's not going anywhere. It's an important part of our societal and cultural and political process. So I'm not I,
1: well, I feel like you complimented John Kasich, so I'll use this as my time to compliment the other side and say that I think the most effective voice on this has been Jennifer Granholm in the hmm. kind of the aftermath of it, and that is really pushing it for me because I got to tell you, Jennifer Granholm wears me out. <laughs> but she is a she is a Hillary surrogate, and she um, I, I saw her interviewed on a number of programs about these comments, and she really I think found that middle ground and said, look you have to understand, and this is what you said too, that, that women of my generation have been waiting for so long to get, to pull the lever next to a woman's name. And now that we feel like we have not just a woman, but the most qualified candidate and someone who really reflects our values, it's so hard. That feels like a gift. And it's Mm -hmm. so hard for us to understand other women, not seeing it that way. Um, I I think that's the best you can do after these comments were
2: made. Well, and here's what I was thinking about. So I feel like it is a generational rite of passage. And both political parties, you support these really sort of, quote unquote, revolutionary candidate for me. It was Howard Dean. For some people, it turned out great. It was Barack Obama. And that generation is very um, invested, hopefully, in the political process because of that. But there's a long historical um, experience of doing this. You support them. They usually lose. You get frustrated with the process, maybe at least apathy. I don't know what the general answer is. But I do feel like that's sort of a generational thing that happens. I don't know if there's a history. I know there isn't. I don't know what happens to these women that, you know, all the polling says are so important to win presidential elections. If you push Hillary Clinton aside for a second time. I'm going to be really honest. I don't know if they show up again. I can tap a very deep well of disappointment in myself if that happens and thinking like, why would I do this to myself again? Like, I don't I don't know all these women who are dependable voters. You know, Kristen talked about you have to get married moms basically to win. Like those are the people Bush won with them. Obama won with them. If you push Hillary Clinton aside again, and these older married women who are, you know, this kind of swing block that really changes elections, I I, I don't know what happens. Well, I think it changes things. I'm
1: mean i going to push you a little bit on this, and I'm going to be careful because I understand and respect your passion about this. Um, I, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I think that's a little bit dismissive of women because there's too much at stake. I mean, you see in education and in business, really there's no aspect of of the American experience that women aren't stepping up for more and more and more. And I think if Hillary Clinton is not elected for whatever reason. Now this this may be different if you're talking about in terms of the Democratic Party,
2: yeah, that that's what i different. That's what I just was about to clarify. I'm okay. not talking about general swing voters. I'm talking about all these really involved women, part mm-hmm. of the, this Democratic consent, like this, you know, this Democratic Party you build or um, I can't think of the word I want. Like not the consensus, but the coalition that you build mm-hmm. if you're Barack Obama. Um, and if you. Yeah, I'm really talking about within the Democratic Party. If you say, uh-uh, no, again, these, let's say, 40 plus Democratic women, I don't know how they're going to feel.
1: Well, it, that could that could very well be. I, And, and maybe that creates an opportunity um, outside of the Democratic Party. I don't know. I, I felt so passionate in a very different way. But but I felt very, very passionate about John Huntsman when he ran. Mm-hmm. And I and I would get emotional about that just because it frustrated me so much that he couldn't it, it felt like he couldn't be heard. You know, he just could not break through in that cycle, despite me feeling a lot of the things people say about Hillary Clinton. He's enormously qualified. I mean, the man was an ambassador to China at a time when economic and, and you know, geopolitical issues were so important. Um, and I still feel like there will be an opportunity for a centrist Republican candidate at some point. i I don't know that it will be in this cycle, I'm hopeful, but um, if not now, there will be at some point. I I think women will hang in, even if Hillary Clinton doesn't emerge as the nominee. I think she will emerge as the nominee, um, but I I think it'll be, I I don't think that the coalition of women in the Democratic Party will completely be eviscerated if Bernie Sanders somehow ends up with the nomination,
2: but we'll see. Uh, We'll see. Okay. Well... We're moving on to the (laughs) suit and I hope everybody is prepared because it is 10 kinds of awesome.
1: length of our whole podcast to properly introduce you, Mark, um, but but I'll do my best to do an abbreviated version here that you're the co-creator, co-executive producer, and co-host of The Circus Inside, the greatest political show on Earth on Showtime, which we love and many of our listeners do as well. Uh, three decades of political experience as an award-winning media producer and communication strategist, Mark has solved problems and worked with many causes, candidates, and companies, including George W. Bush, and Richards, John McCain, Lance Armstrong, and Bono. Mark co-founded No Labels, an organization dedicated to bipartisanship, civil dialogue, and political problem solving, which you know uh, speaks to all of our listeners. You're a reform advocate championing causes such as freedom to marry, reducing the influence of money in politics and ethics reform in Congress, and you've consulted for the Newsroom and House of Cards while writing for the Daily Beast and the Daily Telegraph. So Mark McKinnon, thank you so much for joining us. We are so honored to have you on our show.
0: Well, I'm honored to be on. I love what you're doing and, you know, I mean, just coming from my no labels world, you know, the fact that you come from different political perspectives and provide a forum for people to talk and have conversations from both sides of the aisle I think is exactly what we need more of in this country and so I appreciate what you're doing. Oh, don't! Oh, well, thank you'll give you us
2: so a, much. Yeah, you'll give us so much anxiety if we think you're listening to our podcast, though.
0: <laughs> well, I have. I've been checking out some of the the ones you've you got online. It's great. It's great stuff. Oh, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> okay.
2: I was totally preferable. intrigued by your entire journey, and I I told Beth I'm going to ask: Is there a limit to how many questions I can either ask about Chris Stockerson <laughs> or Ann Richards? I can't decide who I want to know about more. Wow,
0: that's you know that's great. I mean, that, and in fact. Uh, there is no limit because there there's, there's so much about both of those characters that I mean I mean you can and people have written books and books about them, but two just amazing characters.
2: Oh my gosh! Just,
0: just, I mean, Christopherson was, you know, people know he was. I mean, it's funny because I talk about him today to anybody you know that's under, well, that's that's younger, and and, and some people will know that he was a uh, an actor. No. And then, you know, and then some people know he's a musician, but you know, he was a golden gloves boxer. He was a Rhodes scholar. He was an army helicopter pilot. Wow. I mean, and and you know, and just I mean, he was so good looking, women would literally just sort of pass out. he
2: <laughs>
0: They just fall over and faint. And beyond all that, he was he was the nicest guy in the world. I mean, he was he was generous and humble. And and he, the thing that he's most well known for in in the songwriter ranks is. Just how many people he helped. When I first met him, he was on—he was just getting known himself, and he had just heard John Prine, who at the time was a mailman in Chicago. Wow. And Chris just thought so much of Prine that he would take half of his own sets, and instead of singing his own songs, he'd sing John Prine songs. Like <laughs> this guy, John Prine. This mailman from chicago and he's the best songwriter in the world and so he'd take half of his time to give it to john prime which is that just is an example of what a great guy he was and of course ann richards was amazing and i she mean she one is one my number
2: person. one political like if there's one person i get to sit down with and ask political advice from it would be her hands down
0: yeah no yeah i was so lucky to get to be in her orbit and, a lot of fun stories about her. I I could talk for hours about both of them. But, I wish
2: she, I wish we could hear what she thinks about this current circus. I'll tell you that much. Oh,
0: she'd have an opinion, believe me. She was never short of opinions.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, we are totally fascinated by that aspect of your story, especially me. I was just telling Beth, you know, I switched. I was a super conservative evangelical in high school, went away to college, became a crazy, flaming liberal, Um and I think that's not out of the ordinary to make a change, um, you know, as a young person kind of getting used to the world. But I think it is so interesting that you kind of shifted perspectives, went from working Democrats um, to Republicans later in life. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? I mean, I think everybody that listens to our podcast is really um interested in the idea that we all represent a little bit of both sides and that there needs to be a bigger conversation about not hardening into these political um Positions as we get older.
0: Sure. Well, I've had a a kind of you know uh, unique arc in my professional politics in that I've worked on, on both sides of the aisle. I mean, usually you you know you work as a Republican or a Democrat, and uh, and I just I worked for 15 years as a Democrat, and I uh, I worked in Texas a lot early on in my career in Texas at the time was really a one-party state. I mean, you were either a conservative Democrat or you were a progressive Democrat, and there really wasn't much of a Republican Party at the time. Uh In fact, I worked for Ann Richards, as you mentioned earlier, and she was elected in 1990 as governor, and Texas has 28 statewide constitutional offices that, that people run for. In 1990, all 28 were Democrats. In eight years, in just eight years, and George W. Bush has a lot to do with this, eight years later, all 28 were Republican. Wow. So what happened in the middle of all that was that somebody, I mean, not just somebody, but Carl Rove and a lot of other people did a lot of work to establish a, you know, a backbone and infrastructure for a Republican Party, and then George W. Bush came along and became the voice for that. And for somebody like me, uh, you know, I was a conservative Democrat, and I – Uh, And I saw this guy come along who talked about being a different kind of Republican. He was talking about immigration reform and education reform, um, but he was a free trader. And so all these things, I had become, you know, when I was a teenager and younger, I was a radical lefty, and I just kind of got older and had kids, (laughs) just gradually grew a little more conservative than I think a lot of people do. And, And then just coincidence was that I was in this place that, you know, it was sort of shifting Republican, and this re- Republican governor showed up, George W. Bush, who at that time had a very, you know, what he called compassionate conservatism. I love that idea, mm-hmm. and so I, 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 it's a it's a much longer story. But I got to know him, and then went to work for him, and and then I crossed the bridge at that time. I, I went from being, you know, doing professionally, I had worked in Democratic politics to working for him, and then I worked for Republicans for the last 15 years, but. You know, I've always been, when I was working for Democrats, I was just sort of left of center and then worked for Republicans. I'm just sort of right of center. Uh, and I, you know, I, I thought for a long time that there's a broad middle of American politics that it, it is, for a lot of reasons, is not well represented in our, in Congress today. And, um, and so I do a lot of work to try. I mean, Trump, one of the things about the labels is, I mean, first of all, there's two things. One, I think... There's a vast middle of the American political center that's not well represented. But two, uh, that's just a reality. And one of the things I realized at, at, at No Labels was that we have to recognize that there is a divide in this country, not just in Congress but in the country, that for a lot of reasons that we are living in a more polarized time. And mm-hmm. that—and uh, so one of the things that we recognize we, we need to do and are doing at No Labels is to say, okay, there are – you know, Tea Party Republicans and move on Democrats. And part of what we need to do is get those people in the same room and start talking to each other mm-hmm. and working together so we can solve these problems instead of just sort of screaming at each other uh, and just playing pure political politics that does no good in terms of solving the big problems in front of us.
2: Even among the primary environment right now that's so kind of entrenched, do you feel like people are hungry for that conversation? I feel like, you know, you know, Vox really tries to do this. They're talking about, like, let's just not read things that agree with what we already think. I hear Nate Silvers talk about this. We, I mean, people are like thirsty people in the desert with this podcast. Like, oh, my God, thank you for being reasonable. Like, I feel like there's a hunger for that and I and I'm just wondering if even in the midst of this quote unquote the circus do you fe- do you feel like maybe Bernie Sanders and Trump are appealing to that in some way like I just I'm trying to see a way forward because I feel you know Beth uses the term all the time post partisan and I feel like there's yeah. something happening
0: There's no question there's something, there's a big something happening and that's exactly why we started on labels because I get outside of Washington I talk to my friends and neighbors and and to almost a person uh they care about politics they care about public policy but at the end of the day they they care about our country and solving the problems that we have mm-hmm. and and believe that there needs to be much more conversation consensus problem solving so yeah i think there's a huge hunger for it outside of washington and my hope is and my belief is that because of what you're doing and what no labels is doing and what a lot of others are starting to do you know, ultimately, it's a democracy, and the, mm-hmm. the people who run for office respond to voters. And the more voters, you know, send that message, which I think they're doing more and more. And, and a big part of the phenomenon with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders is that people really are upset with Washington, and who can blame them? Because it's just been yeah. gridlock, and, and there's been whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that's a pretty solid conclusion among just about anybody outside of Washington.
2: Right.
1: But it's interesting, you know, Donald Trump is anything but an ideologue. And I think there's something to be learned from that, too. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I find a lot of what he says to be, you know, really off putting and, and not healthy for us. But I I understand the sense of people gravitating just to someone they perceive to be a leader and genuine about what he's doing and, and trying to just be a leader instead of just get elected. Um, so so in some ways, I guess you could think of Donald Trump as as a flavor of postpartisan.
0: Well, no question about it. One thing about Donald Trump is that he's not really an ideologue, as you said. I mean, he comes from a background where, you know, he's been in business, a very successful guy, but he knows that in business, just as it should be in politics, at the end of the day, you have to bring parties that disagree together to get a deal done. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, in terms of you know, we're talking about and at no labels and and problem solving. In, in a lot of ways, that's what Donald Trump represents. Now, as you said, there are things that I disagree with him about, but it, but he's not a harsh ideological partisan. There's no yeah. question about that. So, and I think that that's part of his message that appeals. He says, "Listen, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. We just, you know, let's let's get this done. and Let's move America forward."
1: Absolutely. Well, you said on the circus that, uh, you know, Donald Trump is kind of the, the ringmaster. I'm wondering, as you look at this race in the context of your career, is he all that special? Or is he kind of an extension of Perot and, and Howard Dean and some other kind of interesting <laughs> characters?
0: Well, I think he's special just in in his, in his understanding and, and ways to work media. That's special. But you're, you make a really good point. About Perot, and I, I raise this all the time, which is uh, so I, I've gone back and looked at the political environment when Ross Perot ran in 92, and I just looked at sort of the sort of polling fundamentals in the country at that time about uh, how people felt about government, how they felt about the country, just sort of the usual fundamental polling questions you'd look at. And then I went back. And I took those numbers and looked at today, and I, not today, but fairly recently. And the thing that really jumps out at you is how much worse things are today than they were in 1992. And by worse, I mean people feel worse about their trust in politicians, about mm-hmm. the direction of the country. So. So the argument, I mean, what seems obvious to me when I look at all that, you say, well, if it was, a, if it was a good environment, and when I say good, I mean bad, <laughs> in the sense that people didn't, you know, felt badly about the country and where it's headed, if it was a good environment for per- Ross Perot to run then, you would believe that it's a much better environment for somebody like a Ross Perot to run now. So I, I think at a, at a very base level, if you go back a year or so and you look at this election and you look at the, just the, underlying di- dynamics you'd say boy this is a great great election for somebody anybody to come in as an outsider with a business background you know sort of all those things that you know much like ross Perot and donald trump is it should be no surprise to anybody that trump's doing as well as he is. the only surprise to me not a surprise but you remember when he first ran, there were sort of all the questions of, you know, is he running as a Republican or is he going to run as a third party? I thought that somebody would do this as a third party as an independent. Okay. It's just, it's kind of unusual that Trump has been able to to do it. Well, not, I mean, it's, you know, he had all that sort of back and forth and all the debate about whether he's going to be a Republican. But, I mean, he ended up running in, in the Republican Party. So, I mean, The bottom line is you're right. Just overall, there's just there's a mood in this country for an outsider and somebody like Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, you know, it's all about showing up and he showed up.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's not over yet. I'm not I don't believe him for a hot minute when he says he won't run as a third party candidate.
0: I agree with you. I totally agree with you.
2: No, I think that could definitely still
0: happen. And, of course, now there's the whole discussion about Michael Bloomberg and, you know, if Trump's if Trump's elected and, and certainly if Sanders is elected, then I think somebody like Bloomberg would take a look at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. com slash
1: if you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon priced manicure Olive and June has you covered we've talked about Olive and June's mani system before it has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box salon grade tools your choice of six polishes those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more the cost breaks down to about two dollars a manicure
2: You have Beth is always saying on the circus that you have such a great poker face, which I absolutely agree with. I am a hot ball of nerves watching it. I don't know how you stay so calm. Um, so what's going through your mind when you're having these very personal interactions with the candidates? I just think it's such an this show for anybody who who is listening who hasn't watched it yet is so fascinating and gives you such an interesting insight into the candidates, which I think is so important. Especially, really, I think the circus ties into the no-labels work because it's all about humanizing these people. If we're ever going to get past this partisan, you know, making yeah. them enemies. I mean, well,
0: that was, that was really my whole ambition for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and the circus is a little bit misleading in its title. I mean, it's a circus just because that's the way society and ca- even the candidates think of the, what it's like. But we don't mean that to be – we don't mean that in a negative sense. Right. Right? That's why we face the greatest political show on earth and and my ambition for the show is that that it would be like the same thing that happens to me which is when you get out there and you actually see how hard these people work what democracy demands of them and their families and their staff uh and you kind of get a more dimensional View of this whole process, people actually feel better about it, you know. And that's the I'm really I'm I'm excited to be doing the show because I've thought about it for years and I and I just believed in this concept. But the most rewarding part of it is that a people are watching it, b they're liking it, and c they're getting a lot out of it. People, you know, junkies love it, which I knew would happen, but people who are casually interested in politics yeah. watch it, and they say, man. I learn more about these candidates than I do from the debates watching the circus.
2: It's because, so Because you true. They get a sense
0: of what their humanity is like. And, yes. You know, and you just, and when you see how people interact with their wives or staff or, you know, you just you just get a better sense of who they are as people and what they'd be like as leaders. So, and the poker face, I, you know, I just, the, I describe this, these campaigns as like being in a human microwave and. Uh, and I'm I'm all, I'm in Austin, Texas today for the. It's the first time I've been able to get clean laundry in two weeks. Uh, <laughs> you
1: and Ben Carson, that's right? <laughs> that's what I was
0: thinking. Yeah, me and Ben Carson. <laughs> uh, but it, it's. Uh, I mean, it, I just it, it's it's just such a difficult deal out there. So I just all I, all I can do in my brain is just sort of downshift and say relax and just, just kind of. You know, go to, just shift down a gear and and, st- and And by the way, I mean the the thing that I've learned from campaigns is the best possible feature of anybody who works in these campaigns is just to, to you know is to not get hysterical. You just gotta you know being able to stay calm in the storm is is the greatest premium that you can ask for anybody on a campaign because because so many people just. Go crazy and go nuts, and you know, and then they want to throw the plans out the window. And what you want is just really steady hands. that have kind of been mm-hmm. through the drill before, and say, sit back. You know, I mean, you, you can imagine what it's like on like the Marco Rubio campaign this week. There, you know, they yeah. got people saying, yeah, God, a, you know, disaster, and you know. So those guys, but I've been around his team, and they're they're cool characters, and they're you know they're not going to freak out, and they have got a plan, and they'll try and drive through the tough week that they've got. <laughs>
1: Well, I love that expression, the microwave. And I've been thinking about that a lot because one thing that I think is a little bit unusual this year is sort of the open complaining about the media environment. You know, we heard a lot from Rand Paul and we're in Kentucky, so we, we pay more attention to him perhaps than others do. But he's, he's complained a lot about the Trump media coverage. Jeb Bush is out there saying he's a paragraph candidate in a Twitter world. I, I guess I'm wondering if you were advising a campaign this year, how would you, get your candidate to sort of accept what the media environment is and make the most of it and make sure the voters are still served?
0: Well, um, I guess the best example that I can think of is uh, I used to work with a guy named Paul Begala, who's a, uh, a Democratic operative, an old friend of mine We went to school together. And he he and James Carville were the team that helped elect Bill Clinton. And he was training uh Bill Clinton for um uh a debate and um in nineteen ninety two and uh <laughs> so they asked him a question about you know, just uh, one of the questions they were expecting for the the uh debate, and Clinton uh was about 20 minutes into an answer and my friend Paul said governor I, you know, stop you you don't have 20 minutes you have 3 and uh and Clinton kind of argued oh, that Paul this is a very complicated subject you know <laughs> and uh and Paul said listen governor I understand but you know you you're living in a modern media age and it, unless you learn to adapt to it you're going to lose mm. and so Clinton argued back and argued back and so he said well and Paul said listen you've got three minutes, but really in this, you know, the the, and I, uh, the, the example that he uses and I use, is, that, you know, when Richard Nixon ran for president in 1968, the average amount of time you'd get on TV was 48 seconds. Now it's seven seconds. Wow. So you've got to be able to communicate what you want to communicate in seven seconds, and that's basically what he was telling Clinton, and Clinton was saying, you know, that's ridiculous. He said, give me an example, Paul. Show me an example of taking, a, in, in the, they were talking about the balanced budget amendment in the debate on that question, and, and Clinton said, "Give me an example of something that's that complicated that you can articulate in seven seconds." And Paul said, "Deal." And Paul carries around a little small Bible in his pocket. He pulls it out, he opens it to John 3:16. He said, "To hey, Governor read this." So uh, Clinton reads it. He says, "For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life." Paul clicks his watch and says, okay, there. In 25 words, lasting 6.8 seconds, St. John listed all the essentials of Christian theology. Let me break it down for you, Governor. For God, monotheism. Not the God's just God. It took humanity hundreds of thousands of years to come to the conclusion there's only one supreme being. John 3.16 covers all that ground in two words and a fraction of a second. So love the world. God is not only singular and supreme, but also benevolent, capable of affection on a global scale. He, sorry, pantsuit politics, but God's a guy, and if that offends you, pick it up with the author. Gave his only begotten son. Woo, he's got a son and a begotten one at that, and willing to ship him to earth as a gift, an enormously complicated concept, fraught with ramifications, but delivered in just five words, so that whoever believes in him, having faith in the Son, is a prerequisite to come. what comes next, shall not die but have everlasting life. That's the payoff. Faith triumphs over everything, even death. That's why believers call this the good news so there it is one sentence tells us there's an all-powerful all-loving deity who sent us unto earth as an offering and whoever accepts that offering and receives and returns that love will not perish when he or she dies but instead will live forever and clinton said okay i got it it." (laughs) and went on to be one of the greatest communicators ever you know but that's why you know tim tebow has john 316 written in his eye black and his in football games and you see the guy with the rainbow afro at football games the Olympic john 316 the idea is that's a really complicated concept but if you go read john 316 you get it in seven seconds so then what paul does and what i do and you know what anybody does is just when you're working with candidates you say listen you know you can complain about it all you want but unless you adapt you're going to lose
2: well on the topic of um our Primarily female listeners. We'll let that we'll let John 316 slide. But um, (laughs) the idea of women in this election has gotten so much press coverage, obviously, because of Clinton's presence. And I'm just wondering, you know, you've worked for Ann Richards, strong female. You've been married for approximately a million years from what I can pick up from (laughs) Wikipedia page. Yeah, and you have uh, two grown daughters. So you know, I'm running. We have a lot of young women interested in politics, and I I really want to know your perspective on kind of the the gendered press coverage of Clinton, and what advice you would give to a young woman considering public office.
0: Well, uh, first of all, I'd give the advice to say run. You know, we need you. um, We need good, smart people um, to to run for office, and I think that it's i mean women reflect uh uh our, you know, obviously um, a, a big part of our conversation our culture our politics, and should be and you know i mean the 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 i you know i think that there is a perception not only a perception but a reality and I can't base this on any data but that uh, certainly the perception is true that women are are perceived as being more honest mm-hmm. uh and And there's certainly a demand for and a need for that in our politics. Um, The, (laughs) I think that, I think it's unfair that somebody like Hillary Clinton is held to a higher standard, and that women are generally. And I think that's unfair. I think it's historically been the case. You look at people, women who've been successful in politics historically. You think of, you know, Golda Meir, Margaret Thatcher. Sort of the ones who've been successful uh, over history. There's just no question they've been held to a higher standard. They've had to work harder. They've had to work longer, and they've had to prove it more than men have, mm-hmm. which is unfair. But but you know that but they they've gotten there, and when they got there, they did. They were tremendous leaders, and I think that that's really true of Hillary Clinton. I mean, I I think you can argue about her politics, but you just can't argue about her qualifications if, she, if she's if she's elected president, she'd be one of the most qualified ever elected. And, I, you know, I've met her and worked with her a little bit on a nonprofit, and she she works her ass off. You yeah. know, she works harder and longer than just about anybody I've worked with in politics. Ann Richards was very much the same way. So, um, you know, I think we need more women in politics. I think it makes our politics better. I think they have a better understanding. Again, I, you know, this is not quantifiable. Or maybe it is, but... You know, sort of in labels work, I think that there's women generally, you know, understand the need to have more dialogue, have more conversation. I've just seen that, again, anecdotally with the women that I've worked with, that they're, they're more inclined to at least have the conversations with people. I may mean, just disagree, but they understand the need to have conversations. So uh, I think it's great you're running, and, uh, I, and I hope more women will run and look to examples like you and Ann Richards and all the other women who are running.
1: Our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank
0: you.
2: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
1: Well, we're less than 24 hours out from New Hampshire right now, so we have to ask you, um, any predictions and we we both loved the prisoner's dilemma episode and are wondering what what you make of that after the debate, which
0: yeah JJ, yeah, well, we should have run the, p- I, I kind of wish we'd run the prisoner's dilemma now because it that was a, like this whole week became the ultimate prisoner's dilemma and kind of resolved in a little bit of a way first of all, I'll start by saying, um uh, it's so, <laughs> you you can you can make yourself look really stupid being in the prediction business and politics uh. <laughs> My favorite line about this was: uh, in, I was in Iowa about a week ago, well, whatever day it was, the day before the election, the caucuses, and I ran into a woman named Karen Tumulty, who's a longtime veteran reporter, it was at Time for years, and now she's at the Washington Post. And she said, "You know, Mark, I was uh, I I was just thinking today as I look toward the election tomorrow, and I was re- thinking back to 2008, and I wrote a column then the day before the Iowa caucuses." And she said. With the exception of the spelling in my byline, every single word I wrote was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, there was a lot of upsets in Iowa, as we talked about in the episode last night, which we call Big Mo. New Hampshire has a has a long history of turning things on its head. They like to reject the conventional wisdom. So, uh, it's it's once again really unclear what's going to happen, and certainly I think some more surprises to come out of New Hampshire. We uh, you know the so this prisoner's dilemma was about the idea of the, the four mainstream candidates not doing what they need to do to sort of break out um and you know not come to sort of some sort of agreement realizing that that one of only one of them can really emerge well uh Chris Christie <laughs> decided this week that he wasn't gonna you know the 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 uh, that Marco Rubio had a a lot of momentum coming out of Iowa and he realized and they realized that they got to stop him and and I you know it was pretty dramatic we talked to Christy the day of the debate i guess or the day before the debate and it was pretty clear he was you know he was going to unload and he mm-hmm. did uh in a way that i you know i mean that debate was unbelievable it
1: really was and i yeah
0: I, I can't remember the last time i saw somebody Take it on the chin so hard
2: uh, somebody and, on Twitter described him as body shots and I thought yep that's what those were yeah that's what yeah those it were. was
0: brutal it was brutal and you know so uh, Rubio had you know had a had some real momentum coming out of Iowa and you know I think we'll see we're, you know sometimes we see these things at the base and the media gets all wound up and the voters have a completely different impression of it and we'll see how Rubio but there's still what, three more days before people vote, and that's a lifetime in New Hampshire, and we'll see how he manages kind of the aftermath of that. But I think there's a good chance that, that Christie particularly at least significantly slowed down Rubio's momentum, in, in which case I think there's a likelihood that, you know, that Kasich, that you could again see mm-hmm. that, well, I think what what that means is that Rubio may not have, may not break out like he was going to, and you still have kind of a muddled group of Christie, Kasich, Rubio, and Bush. And, and I think that the person that that, helped, that all this helps the most is Trump. Hmm. You know, I mean, some, now it's, I think, likely that, that Trump will probably win New Hampshire now. And that you have this sort of, you know, group of mainstream candidates bunched below them somewhere. I don't think Cruz will do that well just because, and I told him this and was in the circus last night. I remember... Coming to New Hampshire with George W. Bush in 2000 as the front runner, and then losing by 19 points, and some of that, I'm sure, is cultural. I just don't think New Hampshire voters like Texans. And so I think <laughs> I, I think Cruz is gonna is gonna uh, will will get a dose of that himself. So I think it all goes into South Carolina quite unformed and and still to be figured out. Well, here's my
2: question too. As I'm watching um, the Big Mo episode last night, which I was so good. Thanks. Is it editing, or are they actually? I feel like they're opening up to you guys more and more.
0: Well, Do you feel like yeah, it's I mean, changing? it's a, it, yeah, they are because um, I mean, they're, first of all, they're seeing the show like when we first came to them. They're like, well, "What? What is this? What is oh, going Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that they see when they see it. I mean, first of all, they realize that. You know, our, our, we're not out there to, we're, you know, we're not out there to blow them up. That's not our purpose, you know. Yeah. We're not trying to trick them and, uh, or do something devious. We're just, we're just trying to be an honest reflection of what happens out there and what it's like and, and to give them a chance to show their human side. Yeah. And, that, I mean, and, that uh, moment
2: when Bernie is like, no, stay and tell me what you think about this, to John, right. when, unbelievable. When
0: yeah, just those little moments of human vulnerability. People see that and go, "I love that." Yeah. You know, and, I, and by the way, I'll tell you, this, the, the the hands down star of the show so far is Jane Sanders.
2: Yeah, yes.
0: And, you know, people mm-hmm. just love her. She's just so normal. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's and true. Uh, and so, uh, but but uh, but uh, it. Uh, uh, we are we are certainly finding that the more we do this, the more they sort of understand what we're doing, and the more opportunities we're getting and having to give just give them a chance to show what it's like behind the scenes
2: i really hope secretary clinton opens up to you guys more because i think she has such a great site like working for her that's what i try to get across yeah like you Uh, don't understand what she's like she's so nice
0: i agree a thousand percent and i've you know and i've had a a bunch of conversations with her people and they get it believe me they they want to do this and they're trying to do more of it it's just a sort of an organic process and yeah um and but they you know they're of course the more the people see the show and the more they see what Bernie's doing, the more her people are saying, Hey, come on, this is yeah. turning into a commercial for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And we don't obviously we don't want to do that, but if Bernie's the only one that gives us access and that's what we're gonna keep doing. Right. So well, but I I, love I the moment. I actually, what's that?
1: I love the moment when you are standing outside of an event trying to get a shot of her going to her car. <laughs> and then you sort of wave at the car. And, I mean, they have to recognize that that's not good for her.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no, me, I
2: couldn't agree with you more. Like, when you said she works so hard, like, I tell people, I'm like, I call her the Girl Scout. Because she is going to be there yeah. first. She's going to work the hardest. Yeah. She's going to leave last. That's all. She, I mean, and she clearly has yeah. picked that up. Like, I'm going to work hard for you. I'm going to work hard for you. Like, if people could just see, like, she's not a diva at all. Like she. Really, no, she my just, point was,
0: I think there was a sort of an initial thing of saying, well, you know, you know, I don't know that she does informal that well. Blah blah blah. And I said, I said, listen, it can just be like a meeting with her staff. You know, because she, she's even good in like a meeting. Because you know, it's because you just see that she's like a good person in a meeting. You know, she's she's diplomatic. She's you know, she lets people talk. She's nice. She's she's actually, and you know, very few people believe this, but she's actually can be funny. Yep. You know, and light. Mm-hmm. And and so I said just that's all you got to do just you know we we don't want to come live with her we'll just give us five minutes in a meeting and just let us show the rest of the world what some of us who've spent some time with her have seen and I think we'll get there I think yeah. we'll get there but it's a, it's just a process
2: and it's so funny and you're gonna love this when I met Bill Clinton a long time ago I at a book signing and I just asked him really quickly like what's your number one piece of advice for someone considering public office and he like stopped the line basically and said. You need to meet as many people as you can because the more different levels you can relate to people, the more people are likely to see you as a three-dimensional human being and not this two-dimensional politician. And I'm like, what do you? I know you get this. (laughs) And I asked her and she said pretty much the same thing. Like, I think they they get that, like meeting people one on one. And I think I'm not sure they've internalized that yet as how to portray that in the media. And like social media really gives you that opportunity and shows like the circus really give you that opportunity to see that. So, I I mean, I, I think they get it. He said it to me. I know he does.
0: They do. They do, and you know, and her people are super smart. I've, and yeah. I've, I've worked with a bunch of them over the years. They, they, everybody gets it. It's just like I said. It's just a process. They want to. It'll be incremental, but we'll keep building and and we'll try a little bit, and she'll get used to it, and it'll get better. And and we'll also we're also going to kind of build. into I mean, one of the things that I said too is that, you know, that I, I, it's never been my intention that the whole purpose of the show is to have access to the candidates because. There's so many other interesting people around the campaigns, Mm -hmm. and in some ways, there's a lot of people that are actually more interesting than the campaign. You know, some of these campaign managers and press people and advance people and even people in the press. There's just this whole orbit of characters that are are so interesting and fascinating. Mm I want to show them too. So, you know, there's there's people on the Clinton camp. I mean, Nick Merrill is a good example of a press guy. He's a great guy. He's really funny and smart. And, you know, so I think that over time we'll kind of build out these other characters that you'll see that are part of the orbits as well.
2: Can we have an hour? I really need it to be an hour. <laughs> well, anyway, i, I got to
0: five more minutes and then i got to run.
2: No, I mean the circus. I want the circus to be. An hour. Oh, the circus.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, the. Um, uh, the, we could have easily made all four of these first episodes an hour. Yeah. We had so much good stuff that we had to leave on the cutting room floor. But just doing the half an hour show, I mean, we, we, I mean, just an example. In the middle of the night, Saturday night, we were shooting stuff from the from the Republican debate, and a big. And this, it's a monstrous production challenge, and we had somebody hired that was supposed to take something that we shot and go to an uplink place to get it to us in New York. I was in the editing studio, and the person just quit. Oh, my God. They just God. said, I've had it. I quit. Right in the middle of the night. Oh, no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, we have people working, you know, I mean, like the, the one of the camera guys, the first five or six days worked 92 hours. He was getting two oh, hours of sleep a night. So oh, my the, it's So it's, it's, it, the the hardest part of it is just the pace and the load that everybody's carrying. It's 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 just crushing. And... It's just burning out people left and right. So uh, I'd love to do an hour show, but just to get the half-hour show out is just, you know. You are doing such a good
1: job. Well, we (laughs) can't wait to see how it evolves. We love it. Um, Hope to talk with you again sometime. Thank you for being so generous with your time and thoughts. It's amazing to talk with you, and, and good luck as you keep turning out these remarkable episodes.
0: Well, thank you. I love what you're doing at Pantsuit Politics. I mean, this is exa- just a great example of, you know, people sort of stepping up and doing your part. And congr- And good luck in your race. And uh, we'll keep listening. And kick it hard and carry on regardless.
1: Thank you so much,
2: Mark. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: I'm still recovering from our talk with Mark McKinnon, to be honest with you. I'm glad that we have something um, super compelling to talk about in the heels today, or my brain might just go on vacation, because I feel like Mark McKinnon was amazing and gracious and generous, and that was a wonderful experience.
2: It really was. We can't thank him enough. That was so awesome, and I really wish that when we'd set up, we'd said, can you have three hours? We would like three hours of your time.
1: Can we just come um, follow we'll you around follow, for a yeah,
2: while? Yeah, we'll <laughs> I, I was so close to asking that. I was so close to being like, okay, so where are you going next? Because we'll be there. We'll just. Can we just follow you around for a few days? Can we be Mark McKinnon groupies? I will get a hat. I will. <laughs> I already have boots. All I would need is a hat. So
1: we're going to talk about Beyonce. Yes. So since I, again, was on my deathbed during the Super Bowl, I have only watched uh, Formation, the video that was released right before the Super Bowl. So why don't you kind of give us
2: the setup, Sarah? Okay. So Beyonce, uh, they don't call her the queen for nothing. She came out 24 hours before her performance of the Super Bowl, dropped a new video, which had like 7 million views. We were all singing along when she performs this 24-hour song, old song, at the Super Bowl. And then, if that wasn't enough, at the first commercial break after the halftime show that she performed with Bruno Mars and Coldplay, announces a world tour. Unbelievable. She just does what she wants. And speaking of does what she wants. Okay, so Formation is a incredibly dense, insanely complex, amazing music video. It is... Um, It has lots of um, black pride, black power imagery. It's heavily focused in New Orleans. Um, There's some incredibly powerful images of a young black boy um, dancing in front of a line of um, SWAT team police officers. And then he raises his hands and then they raise their hands. There's a graffiti, stop shooting us. Uh, she sinks a police car with her body in the water. At the I mean, it's it's there's a lot. I'm not going to try to summarize it. Go watch it. It's unbelievable. The song is unbelievable. The lyrics are unbelievable, and it is so incredibly powerful. And you know, when I she did a, a version of it, a shortened version of it at the Super Bowl, there's already already been some um, reaction. You know, people are cl- calling her anti-police. Whatever. I mean, supposedly her in this, not supposedly her, the internet shut down. Like she shut down the internet with her website for the When she announced the formation tour and that commercial, like it immediately shut down. So she broke the internet. So clearly lots of people aren't that worried about this quote unquote anti-police message. I do not find it to be anti-police. I mean, it is, it's don't shoot us as black lives matter language. It's definitely, you know, it has a message, a very powerful message. Um, But as we talked about in some previous episodes, you can be respect, you can respect the police and also critique the police. Those are not mutually exclusive positions. Uh, It's just, and it's powerful, I think, because it is celebratory in a way that while also being political and having something very important to say in a way that sort of pop culture can only do. And she does it so well. It's sort of celebratory of, um, particularly the Black Southern experience, but also has this very powerful political, I mean, I just, I'm sort of obsessed with it. I've watched it like 15 times. Every time somebody posts a new think piece on it, I'm like, yes, I will read all of that. And what was really interesting is I'm watching, I'm like into it on the Super Bowl. My husband goes, this isn't for you. And I told him this morning that I thought a lot about that. And I said, you know, I know it's not, and I don't care. I don't care. It's, you're right, it's not for me. And I think that's great. And I think that speaks to her, Power as an artist that I that it's not for me that I feel like there's something so much to be gained from it um, that I feel like I'm learning something and also that it is just so well done and so in, just enjoyable on an artistic level. I really I can't say enough great things about it.
1: She certainly is an artist. Um, we saw her when she and Jay Z toured, which was a fantastic show and very artistic and. Mm. Ha- f- filled with political statements, Um, you know, she's just, she's super talented. And and it's not like white artists have not done things that are provocative during Super Bowl halftime shows for far less important causes. (laughs) You know, so I, I think that the backlash is just predictable and tired. You know, mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani was on Fox and Friends this morning talking about how it was outrageous and and doing sort of the standard stop attacking the police. And, and I just I, I can understand especially I, I follow some folks on Facebook who are married to police officers and they get very upset about some of this. I have complete compassion for that perspective. If, if I were married to a person who put his or her life on the line every day to protect people. I'd feel defensive about this too. So I, I get that. At the same time, it's good for us to be challenged in this way. It's good for us to have to think about these things. You know, part of what I really enjoy about Beyonce is that her experience is so different from mine and I can't
2: relate to all of it. And that's good, right? Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what art is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it, I'm so happy to see the um sort of this Black Lives Matter and Black Twitter and all these sort of discussions where there's a real pushback from Black America that says we're here and we're creating things and we have experiences that you don't understand and I feel like Beyonce doing this is sort of a really important breakthrough moment where these conversations that are happening in a primarily um, internet space or um and sort of like segregated spaces is sort of breaking through, so we can all- like I feel like when an artist of her level is is pushing this conversation, it's so important it means it's gonna go to the next level. it means we can all say we can all rally around beyonce if you can't rally around beyonce i can't i mean what am I supposed to say to you? you know like we can all agree beyonce's awesome, great so beyonce said all this really important stuff that we need to talk about as a country and like as much as I would really desperately wish that everybody would read Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, it's probably not going to happen. Although the fact that his book has been so popular, I think is also really great. And it just feels like we're coming, it feels so much to me like we're coming up for air in a way. And not, I don't want to imply in any way, shape or form that it's like, quote unquote, fixed. But it feels, I f- feel an energy in the discussion about race in this country that is, just getting bigger and bigger and more powerful and more important. And I think it's so fantastic. I think it's so great for our country. And if Beyonce is the start of the next phase, even better, even better.
1: Well, it's, it's really nice to see it coming from a black woman too. Oh yeah. And part of what I really appreciate about formation is that, it speaks uniquely to the black female experience. Yeah, absolutely,
2: I just read something really wonderful that was like, you know, it's women and children that are pushing, that are pushing the action in this video. It's a little black boy in front of the police, and it's Blue Ivy's in it, adorable, getting so big. Blue Ivy, you getting so big. Oh, so cute, and her, and it's just there's a very. I feel like she's saying something really really great here about that it's going to, you know, women and children are pushing this and these are important perspectives to consider too and this is an important conversation to have as well and it's just oh it's
1: so good I just love it so much. Well to your point uh, to Nicholas's point really about who this is for. Um my friend Jenna who is always Uh, a great thinker on cultural issues posted on Facebook, a link to a post from medium and we'll put this in our show notes, but I had to, I wanted to share this piece of it because I thought it was so great. Um, The writer says, how many centuries were our black brothers and sisters relegated to the position of audience, the thrills of competitive sports, television and movie screens, even the petty dramas of middle-class servitude demanding their attention. We gave them the role of witness to our stories without so much as a thought that they might have their own. Mm. Today, those stories are rising to be told, and though we may be the villain or not so much as a paragraph, if we listen, it will be our great joy to learn all that we have missed. So let's be where we need to be today and every time formation plays, on the sidelines cheering. I thought that was so good. So good. That's Kate Forrestall on Medium.
2: Also, just in case you didn't fully, um, like, understand what a complete badass Beyonce is she almost fell while dancing everybody needs to go look up this moment we'll put it in the show notes she's dancing and she sort of falls backwards and sister is so powerful that she like jumps back squats does not miss a beat it is oh my god it's unbelievable to watch it's almost more like the fact that she fell and recovered is more impressive than if she had never fallen. It's so crazy. She's such an athlete. I mean, oh she's just, gosh. she is,
1: she is the whole package and, and good for her. And I think this was, and also kind of good for the NFL, you know, Pacific, yeah. I don't say that very often, but seriously,
2: it's so true. Good for them. And I, you know, I feel like, listen, <laughs> poor Coldplay. I mean, I like Coldplay there. I went to a Coldplay concert. It was good, but it was so sad. Everyone's like. Coldplay open for Beyonce. <laughs> like, she go, it was like they looked and were like, ooh, Coldplay might be enough. We might need to call in some backup reinforcements here. I'm sure boy, Coldplay did is they. just fine. Yeah, they're fine. They're they're fine. And it's not totally, like, unexpected. I mean, she was on, she guest spotted on their recent release. So it's not like it's just out of nowhere. They were just like, let's call it Beyonce. I mean, there was a connection there. So I mean, good. look, everybody on that football field is swimming in money. They're, they're all yeah, fine. They're fine. They're going to be just fine. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. So many exciting things to talk about and our incredible interview with Mark McKinnon. Maybe he'll be our co host. Maybe we could just be like, Hey, do you want to come on every week and be our co host?
1: I know. And it just <laughs> blows my mind because we have some more great interviews coming up. So it's we just do. it's been really exciting. Stay tuned. Stay with us because uh, you you guys, our listeners, are making a lot of amazing things happen.
2: So thanks to everybody for tuning in. A huge, huge, huge thank you to Mark McKinnon. And as always, thanks to my husband Nicholas for producing this podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Pantsuit Politic on Twitter. And as always, keep it nuanced, y'all.